Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. We are in a period of our history, especially American history, where we are removing a lot of statues to less than celebratory parts of our national past. So how about some good statue news? Would you want to hear some good statue news? Because I've got some of that for you. Regular listeners to the podcast might remember way back more than a year ago when I talked a couple times about a plan in Portland, Maine to raise money to build a statue for the great black hawk that took up residence at Deering Oaks Park in Portland in the winter of 2018-2019. It became one of the most storied rare birds ever to grace the ABA area with its presence. If you are not familiar with the story, the short version... Uh, It was a first ABA area record, first recorded in Texas, and then several months later, it turned up in Maine. It was determined to be the same individual bird. It stuck around for a long time before, sadly, eventually succumbing to the cold weather. It was an extraordinary, if a little bittersweet story, but that bird made a ton of people happy. So friends of Deering Oaks Park decided to make a statue in its honor, and that statue was finally dedicated last week. And let me say... It is very cool. The artist, David Smus, Smus, hope I get that right. Sorry, David. He's a main sculptor. He did phenomenal work. I went to his website and saw some of his other stuff. He's a actually a really impressive artisan. He's done a lot of cool bird and wildlife work. I, I totally see why they went with him. So let me describe this piece to you if you haven't seen the photos. It is a thin stone pedestal, about eight to 10 feet high. The bird is sitting on top of it. It's life-sized. Its wings are out. Its tail is flared. It's running. Very active pose. David even included the single adult tail feather that the bird had by the end. Uh, And the kicker, further down on the post, is a terrified squirrel. uh, Because the gray blackcock was pretty much laying waste to the squirrels of Daring Oaks Park uh, during its entire stay there. And I it's just really, really nicely done. And I, I admit I got, it got a little smoky here in my workplace um, when, I, when I saw it. It's just such a nice thing, you know, at a time. I, I can get as cynical as anybody at a time when, you know, there aren't, doesn't feel like there are that many nice things around. But it's just really, really nicely done. A really wonderful memory. Um, I, I really like public art. You you may or may not know that about me. I, I wouldn't consider myself a, an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I do like what it says about a society that we can have these sorts of things in public places for people to reflect on and learn from and enjoy. Uh, and I, I totally appreciate and acknowledge the way that we are reconsidering a lot of what that art is and what it should do, especially with regards to statues of people, because... People obviously are complicated and messy and societal values change, especially with regard to, uh, you know, quote unquote, explorers and politicians. Um, A lot of times the myth can cause us to overlook the parts of their lives that probably shouldn't be celebrated. Uh, But these sorts of cultural touchstones, a bird that so many people got to see and enjoy. I am I am here for that. Uh, So, you know, more statues of birds in public places, please replace those Confederate monuments that they're taking down with monuments to Carolina parakeets and Bachman's warbler. Sorry, canebrake warbler. Um, At least until we find out that Carolina parakeet had some troubling views about westward expansion and we have to tear them down. I kid, I kid, I kid. Everyone knows Carolina parakeets were free staters.
So links to some of the photos of the Portland Hawk statue from Portland Birders and Friends of the Podcast, Doug Hitchcock and Nick Lund, are in the show notes. Please check them out. It's a very neat thing. On the show today, birding editor Ted Floyd has some thoughts about birding by camera. It is the future. Get on board, folks. But first, perhaps you are listening to this podcast while you are enjoying a steaming hot cup of water steeped in the ground-up remains of roasted tropical berry seeds. Maybe those berries were even grown in a secondary rainforest before they made their way to your home. And maybe your enjoyment of those roasted berry seeds can contribute to the conservation of those birds who will soon be passing through your neighborhood on their way back south to Central and South America. Dr. Ruth Bennett from the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center and expert in the biodiversity of shade-grown coffee plantations is here to talk about well, what else? Coffee. Right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of July 2020. It's been a slower period of late, at least in terms of Rare Birds across the ABA area, but I do have one first record to note from Pennsylvania. In Dauphin County, an apparent Pacific golden plover was discovered and following some discussion about its identity Eventually confirmed, that seems to be the way things go with a lot of Pacific golden plovers on the East Coast. North Carolina's second record of that species was found in Cape Hatteras at about the same time and after, I assume, very similar discussions was confirmed as well. So keep a close eye on those early golden plovers if you live in the East. I have a couple vagrant hummingbirds to note. In Arizona, which hardly needs another ABA area rare bird this summer, a plain-capped starthroat was seen in Patagonia in Cochise County. That is a bird that is still a Code 4 species on the ABA checklist, but probably a fair candidate for dropping to a 3. They are definitely more regular in recent years than they have historically been. And in Tennessee, a Mexican violet ear was banded at a private residence in Clarksville. This is the second record for that state. So also a great time to start looking for these post-breeding wandering hummingbirds across much of the ABA area. Those are the highlights I have for you this week. For a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. Seems like every bird organization on the planet encourages bird-friendly coffee, but what does that mean? Why are there so many bird-friendly standards, and why is it so important for migratory birds? Joining me today to discuss all of that is Dr. Ruth Bennett with the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. She's an avian ecologist with the Smithsonian Bird-Friendly Habitat Initiative, working to optimize bird diversity in commercial coffee, agroforests. Uh, welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, it's nice to be here. Yeah, so let's just go ahead and start at the beginning. What does bird-friendly mean, and why is it important? Yeah, so the Smithsonian invented the term bird-friendly coffee about 20 years ago, uh, and it was in response to the first wave of evidence showing that migratory birds from North America were experiencing widespread population decline. Mm -hmm. A lot of these birds travel to Central and South America and overwinter in what is the coffee belt. So these are mid-elevation, uh, broadleaf forests that have a lot of coffee planted in them. And historically, coffee was grown in these areas up until uh, really about the last 50 years in rustic agroforestry plantations. 
-hmm. So those plantations retain a lot of shade trees. Most of those shade trees are native. And these migratory birds, especially migratory warblers and thrushes, do really well in those types of plantations. They maintain good body condition. But the global trend is now to intensify coffee production, and that means removing all of those associated shade trees. When that happens, the habitat becomes much less suitable for birds, and birds may not be able to retain enough fat over the winter to make the migratory journey back to the U.S. So in order to develop a market-based incentive for coffee farmers to keep these shade trees in their coffee plantations, we developed the bird-friendly standard. What the bird-friendly standard is, is a set of criteria that we have determined make a coffee plantation suitable and good quality habitat for the majority of migratory bird species. Mm -hmm. um, so we have determined that 40% shade cover, at least 10 native tree species in the plantation area, mm -hmm. and um, vertical structural diversity. So having an understory and a midstory and an emergent canopy. Those three things together will ensure that a coffee plantation provides high quality habitat for the migratory bird species that overwinter there. And that's sort of the gold standard. All of those different criteria are sort of the perfect shade-grown, bird-friendly coffee plantation. Yes. So it's really important to note that no coffee plantation, no matter how good its habitat is, will ever be the same as nearby primary forest. Right. So this is definitely not a replacement for primary forest. But yeah. for a cultivated landscape, this is pretty much the best you can do for birds and other wildlife. Yeah. So, I, you know, I've seen a lot of different terms thrown around with regard to coffee. Um, you talk about Smithsonian's bird friendly standard, but there's also you see, you know, shade grown, you see all sorts of different things uh, as little stickers on the coffee on the coffee packet. Um, what is the difference between shade grown and bird friendly? Because it seems like there's at least some overlap there, but it, there is sort of an important distinction. Yeah. So if you see shade grown on the label of a coffee plant, coffee bag, that can mean anything from one or two shade trees within a coffee <laughs> plantation to a fully developed forest canopy above the coffee. So you as the consumer can't know what that shade grown standard is. Right. Shade grown by itself doesn't have any specific meaning to it. So the reason we developed a bird friendly is so that we can say this is a shade grown plantation that meets high quality standards for birds. So um, other types of eco-labels or sustainability certifications, such as Rainforest Alliance, require that some shade trees are retained in the coffee plantation, but it may be just one or two trees per hectare, and then farmers over time are supposed to increase that number of trees. But those types of plantations, while still technically shade-grown coffee, certainly are not providing the same quality of habitat for birds as Smithsonian bird-friendly. So you've done a lot of work in bird-friendly plantations, bird-friendly coffee, agroforests. What would you say is sort of the percentage of shade-grown versus bird-friendly versus, you know, sort of these questionable quasi-shade-grown coffee plantations? Like how many of those are out there trying to sort of, you know, get by on this shade-grown label but aren't really doing what they need to to make it bird-friendly? Yeah, so our label is still pretty small. We currently certify 4,900 coffee producers, and that covers about 12,000 hectares of coffee globally. Mm -hmm. In terms of global coffee production, only about 20% of it is still 
considered shade grown. The other 80% is extremely low shade or full sun monoculture. Mm -hmm. So a very low percentage of coffee globally is any type of shade grown. We don't have hard data actually on the percentage of that shade grown coffee that would meet a Smithsonian bird friendly standard. We have Mm -hmm. some new work that we're investing in right now with remotely sensed LIDAR technologies to try to get to that answer. Uh, my guess is it would probably only be 10 to 15% of uh, that 20% of shade grown coffee that is actually this rustic agroforestry, very high shade, lots of native tree species. Yeah, you, you do your work in these sort of shade grown bird friendly coffee forests. What is it like to be in one? Yeah, so there's there's a wide range of agroforestry systems that qualify as bird friendly shade mm-hmm. the most or the best one for birds would be basically a coffee planting under a thinned out rainforest canopy mm-hmm. so i've worked in some plantations like that in honduras and guatemala where 50 to 100 years ago farmers moved into what was primary forest thinned out the understory planted coffee and are continuing to co- cultivate coffee uh, in these rustic agroforests. Mm-hmm. Those tend to only exist now if they're in buffer zones of nationally protected areas. So if there is a reason why coffee farmers cannot thin out that canopy further, they won't. But you can generally produce higher quantities of coffee if you open up the canopy a little bit right. and let in more light. And so there's a strong economic incentive for farmers to thin out that canopy um, and and uh, grow greater quantities of coffee. So mm-hmm. In the best rustic agroforestry systems, you might have 90 to 100% canopy closure, very low light filtration, and very low coffee production. So that exists like right around the edges of national parks all over Central and South America. Um, But most of our bird-friendly plantations are a pretty substantially thinned out canopy, and you can even start with nothing and plant trees and get up to our standards. So we only require 40% canopy cover. So that's, you can thin out the canopy pretty substantially and and still meet that 40% threshold. So on the lower end, um, these might look like plantations where people have planted Inga trees and probably have some retained trees from the native forest that once existed on these areas and have some fruit trees interspersed. But the majority of those trees would have some commercial use for the farmers. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to burn in a shade-grown coffee production i don't know if it was like uh, actual it was in guatemala it was mm-hmm. sort of around the base of uh vulcan san pedro down in the southern part of the or southern part of the country and the you know the lower part of the mountain and it is um it was so birdy like it really was like there were this we were there in february and so it was just crawling with all sorts of you know breeding birds and from the united states and canada uh tons of wilson's warblers uh, magnolia warblers, Townsend's summer and western tanagers. It was pretty remarkable, and it seemed like uh, like a lot of the the place that we stayed at was sort of a rustic coffee plantation, mm-hmm. and they were able to sort of do their coffee work and also sort of appeal to ecotourists from the U.S. and Canada and wherever uh, to come. And so they were kind of kind of double dipping on both of those uh, industries, which seemed like a really good angle. Do you see that happening a lot? in these sort of rustic, you know, really great, high quality coffee forests? Yeah, that depends in large part on the accessibility of the coffee plantation to tourists. Mm -hmm. So we definitely promote and would love to see the majority of these bird friendly certified plantations engage in some sort of bird tourism or bird Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, yeah, bird trips with either national or international tourists. In spots that I've worked in Honduras, um, there I was primarily doing a research project for conservation of overwintering golden-winged warblers. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the coffee plantations I worked in would meet bird-friendly standards, but were so far away from major mm -hmm. airports or any sort of uh, paved highways that it would be pretty difficult for international tourists to get out and bird in them. However, local birders in Honduras definitely go out and visit that, those plantations, spend yeah. a lot of time there, but they're a little off the beaten path. <laughs> so yeah. you've got to have some local knowledge, uh, car with four wheel drive and yeah. Um, yeah, some local contacts to get up to them. Well, there's certainly an incentive to try and encourage um, local birding cultures in a lot of these places, because those are the people that are going to end up going to these places and exploring these, these places and maybe even developing them to some extent as tourism sites. I mean, that's could be used down the road as that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. And even if these sites aren't linked to bird tourism, a lot mm -hmm. of the cooperatives that participate with us sell their coffee locally with some mm -hmm. sort of bird label or uh, bird promotional material. So yeah. in Peru, we work with a couple of cooperatives that actually don't sell their coffee internationally, but they are bird friendly certified. And they've developed their own bird labels to um, to try to get people in Lima and in the bigger cities excited mm -hmm. about the possibilities of conserving birds in those plantations. Yeah. So what is it like for the people who work these forests? Is it more difficult to harvest coffee in these places than it might be in a in a more conventional coffee plantation? I don't think it's more difficult. I've actually personally spent about a week harvesting coffee on a bird friendly mm -hmm. plantation. Um, and the the main difficulty comes with lower production. So mm -hmm. the amount of time you spend per bush is less and you spend more time traveling between bushes to harvest uh, the yeah. coffee cherries. Because it's by hand either yes, way. All of it is yeah. done by hand. Yeah. yeah. But the, the shade trees themselves don't provide much of an obstacle for people that are picking the coffee. They mm -hmm. may provide some sort of obstacle for the landowners. Uh, some of the shade trees need to be thinned out seasonally, right as the coffee flowers, uh, mm -hmm. to to help boost production a little bit. So there's more management that's required of the shade trees on bird-friendly coffee plantations. Are the people who own these plantations, are they under pressure to change this current bird-friendly system to a more, you know, mechanized, high-yield system? So that really depends. Um some coffee growers will choose to engage in high yields and high production, fully mechanized production, full agrochemical inputs in mm -hmm. order to produce coffee with high rewards. But a lot of people choose to participate with the bird friendly certification because it's a type of specialty certification that takes their coffee out of bulk markets and allows mm -hmm. them to get higher prices for it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So coffee that is very high quality, has a high cupping score, can do that. But also coffee that has an eco label can get out of that bulk market and allow people to get better prices. Yeah, I uh, got to explore a coffee plantation in Colombia a few years ago, and it was not shade grown. It was they turned it from a cow pasture into a coffee plantation. So you know, a lateral move, I guess. Mm -hmm. They talked a lot about how it was high quality coffee and how that coffee ends up going to a special market and going to a special place. There's a, there's a lot to consider when you are a small coffee grower. The local coffee growers sort of band together and they sell their coffee together towards a distributor. And that's typically how it works. Like the whole coffee chain 
is sort of interesting. It's different than other agribusinesses, it seems. Yeah. How farmers choose to engage with coffee supply chains has a lot to do with the types of decisions they make on the farm and how much they get paid for their coffee. Mm -hmm. So the majority of farmers that reach out to us and want to become bird friendly certified are looking for a way to get out of the bulk commodity price. So every year there is a price set on coffee globally, and that's determined by how much coffee was produced the year before, how much coffee is projected to be produced that year. And so some years the prices are very low for producers to the point where it's not even worth it for them to harvest the coffee. Huh. Who, who makes this decision? Is there's like an OPEC for coffee? It's, ooh, that's a good question. I do not huh. know who makes that decision, but I, it's, it's all market driven. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I would assume it has something to do with economic modelers and financial planners and, and then that price fluctuates, but it's mainly based on <laughs> supply and demand. Yeah. So if there's high demand and low supply, then the price that each farmer receives sure, is very yeah. high. And if it's vice versa, the farmers make basically nothing. Yeah. And I'm sure that if there are a lot of high high yield coffee growers out there, then that could potentially hurt the people who are trying to do things the bird friendly way. Absolutely. So one of the major problems for Arabica coffee producers, so that's the high flavor coffee that's grown primarily in the mountains of Central and South America, Mm -hmm. is that farmers that don't have coffee of good enough quality to get out of the bulk market are now competing with Robusta coffee, which is Mm -hmm. a different species of coffee that can be grown in fully mechanized plantations in the lowlands of Brazil and Indonesia. That's like your Folgers and your Maxwell House and that sort of stuff. Yeah, your your standard gas station coffee would be right. primarily Robusta. So it's very low yeah. flavor, but high caffeine. Sure. And, and because that species of coffee can be grown with tractors, it doesn't need to be produced by hand. It can be grown mm-hmm. in these big, flat, lowland areas. There's a lot of that coffee that's produced every year more every year. And so then these Arabica handpicked coffee farmers are now competing against this other type of coffee system. Mm. Yeah. I, I know your work has a lot to do with sort of agroforests generally, of which shade-grown coffee is sort of the poster child for a responsible partnership between agriculture and conservation. But I want to talk about other crops uh, as well, namely palm oil and uh, cacao or, or chocolate. Let's yeah. do the uglier, the uglier one first. Um, <laughs> you know, palm oil agriculture has already been this huge driver of forest degradation and deforestation in Southeast Asia, especially. Um, do you see it impacting Central American forests as well? And is there a way to sort of limit that spread? Yeah. So Central America does have oil palm. Um, It's primarily restricted to the lowlands at the moment, but the whole Mm -hmm. Caribbean slope of Central America has uh, oil palm moving in. Yeah. I remember flying into uh, San Pedro Sula in Honduras, and it's just like acres and acres of palm oil plantations. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. So the biggest threat with oil palm is that primary rainforest will be chopped down and converted to oil palm. Mm -hmm. So there you have almost a complete loss of all types of biodiversity. Yeah. Um, However, there are some really old, we might even call them rustic oil palm plantations that I've seen in Honduras that are about 100 years old. The trunks of the palm trees are completely covered with epiphytes and birding in those areas is actually pretty good. There's a lot of native species that will come in from nearby forest and use them. But um, I believe those those plantations would be considered almost abandoned by their 
by their owners. They produce very low quantities of oil palm and there's high pressure for them to chop yeah. all those trees down and replant with younger, more specialized trees that can get them higher yields. So as soon mm. as that happens, it will be another loss of biodiversity in that area. Yeah. And so, so you work with cacao as well. Yeah. Is there a standard for bird-friendly chocolate? So we are currently working on a standard for bird-friendly cacao, uh, which uh-huh. will lead to bird-friendly chocolate. So um, we started by conducting a complete literature review of everything that's known about how birds are impacted by cocoa agroforestry. Mm-hmm. And we found that mainly the things that uh, impact birds in coffee plantations are the same things that impact birds in cocoa plantations. Hmm. So uh, we have a study that's in review right now uh, that shows that endemic birds, frugivores, and insectivores lose out in any type of cocoa production. So relative hmm. to forest that's nearby, you will always have more endemics and frugivores in the forest than you have in cocoa, even if it's highly shaded and there's a lot of native tree species there. Does that have to do with what cocoa is or what grows around it? What, what would sort of cause that? We, we haven't been able to dive into the mechanism of mm-hmm, that sure. uh, scientifically yet, but my hypothesis would be that there's less large fruits in cocoa plantations yeah. than you have in nearby forest. So then you're going to lose your toucans and your katingas mm-hmm. and um, like your quetzals, anything that depends on a stable year-round fruit supply yeah. that appears to not be present in cocoa plantations. Huh. And and the link with endemic birds and loss of endemic birds is also probably linked to just the decrease in number of tree species that you have in these cocoa plantations. Even if they retain a lot of trees, it's never going to be the same number as you have in nearby uh, native forest. Mm-hmm. And so you have a loss of niches that endemic birds yeah. have specialized on. Oh, interesting. So um, I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. I know that sort of coffee connoisseurship is sort of following in the, the path that wine and beer have already sort of well-worn. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite coffee from any of these plantations? And when you're drinking these coffees, what are you sort of looking for as a as a coffee drinker? Ooh, so I have tried a lot of different bird-friendly coffees. <laughs> <I'll bet>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I most recently tried Pete's Yosemite Dos Sierras blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's coffee from Finca Agro Berlin in Colombia. And it's a really chocolatey, earthy flavored mm. coffee that's pretty unique for bird-friendly coffees. So I would say the majority of bird-friendly blends I've tried come from Guatemala or Central America yeah. and are kind of light roast, very floral and aromatic varieties, which I also really like. Um, but for that that darker roast, more chocolatey notes, um, that's something I've only found with that Yosemite Dos Sierras mm. blend. I know a lot of that has to do with the roaster, you know, when they, they ship the beans green to the the roaster in the United States or Canada or mm-hmm. wherever, um, they can do a lot, but there's some of it has to do with like the actual characteristics of the bean. Yeah, absolutely. So the soils uh, that the coffees grow on, the altitude it's grown on, and actually the amount of shade all impact the flavor that that bean has. Huh. And then it's up to the roaster to understand the bean and be able to roast it to bring out the best flavors. Yeah, it sounds just like wine. Yeah. Dr. Ruth Bennett is an avian ecologist with the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. She studies agroforests and bird diversity, specifically on 
coffee plantations. Is there a place where people can find certified bird-friendly roasters and producers? The Smithsonian Bird-Friendly Coffee homepage has a new online portal for finding coffee and buying coffee. Fantastic. So you can type in your uh, zip code and it'll show you all the roasters around you or coffee shops that sell bird-friendly coffee. And it also has a link to every type of bird-friendly coffee that's sold in the U.S. and Canada. That's fantastic. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that ABA also sells bird-friendly coffee through Thanksgiving Coffee Company uh, on our website as well. So you can check that out also. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Ruth. Thanks. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. There used to be a saying, because you're never not a birder. Nowadays, it's hashtag birding never stops. You get the idea. There are always birds to be seen, birds to be birded. Earlier this month, I was involved in the COVID-19 compliant shuttling of mountain bikers in the rugged foothills of Eagle County, Colorado. This is austere and beautiful country, home to green-tailed towies and blue-gray gnat catchers and gray flycatchers. Lots of gray flycatchers. What to do? Well, I had some time till my next shuttle drop, and I had a small but serviceable digital camera. So I took photos of gray flycatchers. Lots of photos of gray flycatchers. I made videos, too, and I audio recorded the flycatcher's feeble sounds. Check out my post next week in How to Know the Birds, appearing bi-weekly at aba.org for the multimedia extravaganza. For now, let me just say this. You're never not a birder, and hashtag birding never stops. And yet, my engagement of birds and nature is so very different from how it was when I was the same age as those teenage mountain bikers. It's different, and it is, I declare to you, incomparably superior. You see, the camera slows me down. Making videos especially slows me down. So does recording audio. E-birding slows me down. Gotta get those comments in there. Gotta record numbers counted or estimated. Gotta double-check and sometimes triple-check those tricky IDs. That dusty, sunny morning amid the junipers and sagebrush in Eagle County... I enjoyed an immersion experience in the biology of gray flycatchers on the breeding grounds. Butterflies, too. One species, the small wood nymph, was prolific. In endeavoring to get the perfect photo, I learned about this nymphalid's flight style, perching proclivities, and more. I wouldn't have learned those things if I hadn't been taking pictures, with the conscious objective of going on to share my photos at iNaturalist and a Facebook group called Arthropods Colorado and Wyoming. And I wouldn't have learned cool new things, possibly hitherto undocumented by anyone, about gray flycatchers. From time to time, I hear grumbling about those darned kids and their internets. They're playing on my lawn, messing things up with their memes and hashtags, their cameras and smartphones, their eBird checklists and iNaturalist accounts and whatnot. Bring it on. I'm birding harder and better than ever before. Not only that, I'm birding different. Slower, as I said, with technology, but deeper and richer. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to be on my way now. The kids are on the lawn again, and I want to go play with them. I want to learn and share and wonder and discover more than ever before. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources that the ABA provides, please consider joining. You get our magazine, you get discounts to partners like Princeton University Press and Cornell Labs, Birds of the World, and you get the knowledge that you're helping to build 
better birding community here and around the world. You can get more information about all that at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Richard Weinstein of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Greg Power of Georgetown, Massachusetts, Austin Rowe and family from Randolph, Kansas, Alana Vokes from Sarnia, Ontario, Robbie Kiefreiter of Shelton, Connecticut, Max Miller of Denver, Colorado, Max Scott of Albany, Minnesota, Kevin Clifton of Brooklyn, New York, Lori Large of Oceanside, California, Spencer Ederly of Washington, D.C., and Justin Cook of Portland, Oregon, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for that. And welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the American Birding Association is Jeffrey Gordon, who wants to see a statue of last year's ABA first record, Northern Giant Petrel, created and placed where the bird was seen, 40 miles off the coast of Washington. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has already commissioned an honorary video montage of last year's Michigan spotted red shank to be distributed to the masses via hacked Subaru. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who want to see some sort of public art dedicated to the Chicagoland Alania, that ABA first that was never confidently identified. Maybe one of those funky images where you look at it at one angle and it looks like a small bill of Alanium but you shift a few feet to the other side. It looks like a white crowned Alania, but to the vast majority of observers, it looks exactly the same either way. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. Instead of a bird, I think we should commission a bronze statue of Barbara Lestenkoff of St. Paul Island, Alaska. Set it on the far western tip of the island, binoculars ready, camera raised, peering off towards Russia, waiting for that next Asian vagrant to touch down. Questions and comments and corrections can come to me at podcast.ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>